Well, hey, as Brian mentioned, my name is John, and I get to serve in Byron Center as your Center Church campus pastor. And uh, this weekend, it's been a full year since I've been there, and so it's gone really quick. But one thing I love about serving on a team like Frontline and Center have is just the ability to collaborate and to serve in roles like this. The fact that I get to come up and to bring God's Word is a privilege for me. So I'm excited about it. I hope you are too. I want to take you back to a time when you were obsessed with a Disney movie. Now you may have kids and there you went through the frozen phase, let it go, was sung at your house almost daily. You may move into the next phase of Moana. Anyone know Moana? Like the anthem, you just, that was on your TV all the time and you couldn't wait for it to be done. There's a movie that every time I think about my childhood comes to mind right away. And it's the movie Snow White. And not for the reason you may think. You may be like, wow, do you really identify that closely with a fair, fair, uh, fair complexion princess? No, you're wrong. But what I do relate to is the, the memory I have the night after I watched Snow White. Because this woman, the queen, literally burned terror into my six-year-old brain. Like, I was so afraid of her. I remember going to bed just hoping she doesn't show up into my room somehow or do something. But you remember that crucial scene in which she looks into the mirror and says, Mirror, mirror on the wall, who is the fairest of them all? There's that weird moment in which it shifts and we find out Snow White's on the scene. Like, Everything is about to change, and immediately the queen's heart is gripped with envy. And the whole rest of the movie between witches and rolling apples and little dwarf people and everything else is a story of this envy being lived out, and eventually she's defeated and and all is well. Disney movies normally end up pretty okay, and and it ends, ends up well. But envy is not just a fairy tale problem. 80% of us, University of California recently did a study, and they looked at 80% of us, the fact that as adults, that that much of a percentage regularly deal with feelings of strong envy. And envy, as Craig Groeschel defines it, the pastor of Life Church, he talks about it this way, and I think it's so easy to remember. He says that envy is resenting God's goodness in other people's lives while ignoring God's goodness in your own. That is powerful. Envy has a way, Scripture talks about in Proverbs, that envy literally will eat you alive. That if not controlled or fought off or submitted, envy will rot your bones. And I don't know about you, but I didn't come today to find out how do I get more of that. (laughs) I came to find out the truth. And, And so as we journey through, you may think about envy this way. Maybe envy in your life is pulling up to a stoplight, and you're pretty content with your car until you pull up to that new car next to you, and you're like, uh, God, I deserve that. Like, I, I want that. Or you have that one house in your neighborhood that you're pretty content with your house, but every time you drive by it, it's like, eh, God, I kind of deserve that. Like, I've been really good lately. I feel like that house would look really good on me. Like, 2,000 square feet, it's nice, but three would be perfect. Like, you maybe have said stuff like that. Or you go to the gym, right? I go to the gym once a year, and every time I go, every time I go to the gym, uh, I have this moment in which there's a guy running on the treadmill next to me, and, and I look on the screen, it says 10 miles, 7 minute mile pace, and the dude's not even sweating. It's like, come on, God, how's that fair? And uh, I make it one mile, and I'm dripping in sweat. And there's some moments I've been at the gym and said, if I only had 
that guy's strength. Or if, I, if you're a woman, you're like, if I only had that girl's body, or if I had that full Nike kit, I would look amazing going to the gym. Whatever it is, but envy for every one of us surfaces in our lives. And it may not be a car, it may not be the perfect body, it may not be the lawn, it may not be the perfect set of kids you wish you had. Like, it may not be any of those things. But envy for every one of us surfaces sometimes in feelings of discontent with our lives, of living out of a place internally of exhaustion or fatigue or high stress seasons. Maybe for you it looks like a deep anger that only comes out sometimes, but it reminds you that you're not as close to God as you thought you were. Maybe for you it's just as simple, you walk in a room like this and God couldn't feel farther from you than he does right now. But for every one of us, envy hits at this core question. And whether it's a better lawn or discontent or frustration with God, at the core of all of those questions and all of those longings is this. We've all said this probably once or twice in the quietness of our own soul. Does God really see me? Does God care about me? Does the creator of the universe, sovereign, dominion over all, in all things he has supremacy, does that kind of God care about me? Does he really see me? Not just can I have a personal relationship with God, but does God desire a personal and and close relationship with me? We've all asked that. I, I know I've asked that, even in recent seasons, that God, do you see me? And my answer to that question determines whether or not envy will grip my heart. And so, if envy rots the bones, and if envy literally will eat us alive, I think it's pertinent for us to know how do we escape it? Like, how do we stay away from it? How do we fend it off in our own lives? With God's help, what do we need to do to get it out of our path? Because my hope for you and Scripture's hope for you is that you would continue growing, that your life would be deeper and deeper in Christ. And we're in the series called Shepherds and Kings, in which we're studying the life of a teenage king named David, who went from being a shepherd boy to leading the nation of Israel, God's chosen people. And in verse chapter 17, last Sunday, we studied David and Goliath, a familiar story to many of us. But David, through God's power and saying, this is the Lord's battle, not mine, overcame the giant. And that's hope for all of us. And maybe giant in your life looks like envy today. Maybe it looks like jealousy or discontent or frustration. Whatever it is, we can look to this story that we're about to read as hope for us. As giving us some handles on how to fight off envy. And so if you've got your Bible, most of the scriptures are going to be on the screen, but not all of them. So it's important that you've got something in front of you to read. And whether that's a Bible app or physical Bible or uh, you've got this chapter memorized, whatever it is, uh, we're going to dive into 1 Samuel 18. And right after David brings Goliath's head to King Saul, as kind of a sign of victory, a sign of God's triumph, this is what we read in verse 1. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. Now, I'm going to pause there because you may think, that's a jerk move. Like, King Saul taking this random teenage king who's going to be the king someday and not letting him leave. But this was actually a high honor. 
Because David was being acknowledged as someone who's important to the royal family. And he wanted to keep him there and provide for his needs and get him training. And so keeps him in the family. Verse 3. And Jonathan made a covenant with David. This is Saul's son. Because he loved him as himself. So Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and he gave it to David along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. Whatever mission Saul sent him on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. And this pleased all of the troops and Saul's officers as well. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, that's Goliath, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing with joyful songs, with timbrels and lyres. And as they danced, they sang, Saul is slain as thousands, and David is tens of thousands. That's a real catchy worship song, if you ask me. In verse 8, it says, Saul was very angry. This refrain, this song, displeased him greatly. That's like a biblical way of saying this guy was pissed off, right? Like he was mad. It displeased this king greatly. He said, they've credited David with tens of thousands, and me just with thousands? What's next, the kingdom? I mean, that's what the scripture says. What's next? Is it going to give him everything I have? And in verse 9, it says, From that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. Saul had allowed envy to creep into his heart. And envy had started to eat this guy alive. This current king with military success, handsome looks, women, wealth, fame, all the rest, starts to get threatened by a young shepherd boy who God says is going to be king. Envy had started to grip his heart. You read on, and in verse 10, something happens. The scene gets a little bit more legit. The next day, an evil spirit from God came forcefully on Saul. He was prophesying in his house while David was playing the lyre as he usually did. Something like a harp. So David's playing the harp, and here's what happens. Inspired this painting. Saul had a spear in his hand, and he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. Like, I just love that scripture. I don't know why, but just picture as a king, this guy is so gripped with envy, he's literally holding onto a spear in his court. He's not fighting anybody, remember that. He's in the place of safety holding on to a spear, this little shepherd boy singing, good, good father, and he decides, I'm going to hurl this spear to the wall. Like something is clearly wrong with this guy internally. Like he's got some serious envy. Now David pulls a matrix move, eludes him twice, and then we read in verse 14 this. In everything David did, he had great success because the Lord was with him. In verse 15, it says, when Saul saw how successful David was, he was afraid of him. Better way to even look at that is he grew in envy of David. He wanted what David had. But contrast that with with Saul's son, Jonathan. What does Jonathan do? And all of 1 Samuel, really, there's a contrast between David, who's humble, submissive, and surrendered, who overcomes giants by God's power and says, this is the Lord's battle. And people like Saul, proud, full of themselves, arrogant, in their own power, driven by ambition, driven by greed, driven by envy. And there's a contrast going on. And Jonathan serves as that contrast in this chapter. Because you see the first couple verses, when confronted with David as the military victor he was, with the the future and anointed king of Israel, 
that Jonathan, as heir apparent, would have had rights to, he lays his life down. He literally says, you take my, you take my robe, you take my royal clothing, you take my bow and belt, they're to you. I mean, I want to support what God's doing in your life, even as the one who holds the rights to that. And Saul doesn't necessarily respond the same way. He goes the spearing route and tries that, but it actually is elevated. So read with me if you've got the scriptures. It won't be on the screen. In verse 24, it says, When Saul's servants told him what David had said, Saul replied, Say to David, The king wants no other price for the bride than a hundred Philistine foreskins to take revenge on his enemies. Yes, I did read that in church. Saul's plan was to have David fall by the hands of the Philistines. Now, when the attendants told David these things, he was pleased to become the king's son-in-law. This was ancient practice. Because what Saul was doing was saying, as, as a military success, as a triumph, as a future king, I'm going to give you one of my daughters. It's kind of a token of what, uh, of what you've accomplished in a way. And what David does is kind of, again, humble and submissive. Say, I, I don't need that. Like, I'll figure it out. He was in love with one of Saul's daughters, come to find out. But it wasn't his right. He said, I don't need that. It makes Saul a little bit ticked off. Like, this guy too good for my own daughters? Like, let's see what's going to happen. I'm going to give him the foreskin challenge and see what happens. And here's this kind of story that we read, which is kind of odd and peculiar. And you're like, John, do you always preach on this? No, this is my first time. So as you move through the story, though, it says in verse 26, when the attendants told David these things, he was pleased to become the king's son-in-law. So before the allotted time elapsed, David took his men with him. And he went out and killed 200 Philistines and brought back their foreskins. They counted out, said it again, counted out the full number to the king so that David might become the king's son-in-law. Then Saul gave him his daughter Michal in marriage. When Saul realized that the Lord was with David and that his daughter Michal loved David, Saul became still more afraid of him and he remained his enemy the rest of his days. Saul's heart was gripped by envy. He couldn't let it go. He had felt like he was being replaced by God's anointed one, this teenage shepherd boy. What right does he have to my kingdom? I've earned this. I deserve this. That's what envy does. It tricks us into thinking that we deserve something that someone else has. We deserve a life that someone else has. We deserve the blessing that someone else is experiencing more than that person does. But the contrast is, is so clear. When you look in this passage, you see that Saul wanted David's blessings. But Jonathan, his son, he celebrated David's blessings. He recognized God's anointed one when he saw him, and he was on the same page with God. He had the same agenda. He wanted Israel to flourish, and he wanted to acknowledge that David was the anointed king, and so he lays his life down and doesn't claim it for his own. See, here's the the key to envy. If you want to distinguish between envy and jealousy and all these things in your life, when you notice someone else's life, that's data. Those are just facts. Like if I drive by your house and you've got a nice 2018 white Subaru that I know my wife wants, I'm going to be a little bit shocked by it. I'm going to be pleased that you have it. But if I stay there, it's just data. I've just acknowledged the fact you drive a 2018 white Subaru Outback and it's awesome. But where it changes is when I start to want your life, 
that helps you get that 2018 white Subaru Outback, that's envy. I move from noticing something about you to wanting what you have, to wanting the life that you have. And whether it's a gym or a spouse or a coworker or a certain project or career or prestige that you don't have at work that you feel like you deserve, when you notice someone else's life, that's just data. When you want someone else's life, that's envy. So if envy eats us alive, how's that any different than just common jealousy, right? Because jealousy is, is simple. That happens, at least for me, almost on a daily basis if I don't let it stay in check. Like jealousy is me looking at that Outback and saying, man, I want that Outback. That is sweet. I could load up a ton of kayaks in that thing. Like that would be amazing. That's what I want. I, I maybe even deserve that. I'm jealous that you got that Outback. And that only happens between two people. Jealousy is a, is a, is a battle between the two of us. I want what you have. Envy's different. Envy is a battle between three people. It's a battle between me and you and the me I wish I was. Me, your stuff, your life, and the life I wish I had. The person I wish that I could be. The discontent, whatever that picture is of what contentment would look like, the discontent that arises when I envy you. And Proverbs 14.30 is really clear and really specific about the effects of envy. Proverbs 14.30 says, A heart full of peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. I don't know about you, but I don't want that. I don't want that life. I want the life that, that Jesus and, and, and even Jonathan model in this story. And so what do we do? How do we get around it? And how do we identify envy? I love what the Spanish Jesuit priest, Baltazar Gracian, which if you're looking for a baby name, just saying, Baltazar sounds pretty cool. He'll never be able to spell it, but it sounds pretty cool. But Baltazar Gracian wrote this about envy. He said, the envious die not once, but as oft as the envied win applause. Let me say that one more time. The envious die not once, but as oft as the envious win applause. See, envy is never content. Envy will fight for more of your life. Envy is going to fight for more of the things that you desire. It's going to lead you. Let's be honest. I don't think Saul woke up any of those mornings saying, hey, I would love to pin my worship leader to the wall. I can pretty much safely bet that Brian doesn't wake up thinking that about Corey, right? I can't wait to pin this dude to the wall when I get to work. Like, We'd have some serious issues on our hands. And then he ups the ante. And the reason he sends them out to get 100 Philistine foreskins is not because he's weird or like uh, this is just a weird story we need to include in the Bible so it stays weird. But what he's saying is that if you have to literally circumcise 100 guys and they've got to be dead, there's a good chance you're going to get taken out in the process. That's a very specific command, a very specific challenge. And so... What happens is David doubles down. He knows the Lord's with him. And he says, I'll give you 200. He gives him 200, comes back, and it makes Saul even more envious. But here's what we can do to fight off envy. There's something that you and I can start right now to actually fight off envy. 
to not let our hearts be gripped, to not follow the example of Saul, but follow the example of Jonathan. And here it is. We are going to decide now to fight off envy later. We're going to decide now. We're going to make a commitment now. Maybe for you literally now, or maybe for you today, or maybe for you this week to fight off envy later. Because in this setting, envy is not really part of yourself right now. I mean, I'm assuming. But when you step out into the world, when you're back at work, when you're back at school, when you're back in the neighborhood you live in, maybe that you don't really want to live in, when you're in all those environments, envy is going to creep in and seize your heart like a plague. So you got to decide now to fight off envy later. But there's something in common with every single person I know, and it's, some of you are included in this list. There's one thing that everyone does, and it's one thing that Jonathan does in this story that will help us fight off envy. There's one simple shift that you can make in your day. It may take a couple minutes, may take hours, but you can do it. Every one of you can do it. And it's this, to fight off envy later when it comes, even after you decide, you have to practice gratitude. Now that may seem like really rudimentary and you're like, I showed up for that. Like that was kind of lame. Like isn't that a Thanksgiving thing? Like, But practicing gratitude is a common denominator in every person I've seen that effectively fights off envy. Because what gratitude does says, I don't need more, I have enough. I don't need a different life because God has given me a great one. I don't need a different car because mine turns on and has four wheels still. I don't need someone else's life because I'm content with my own spouse. I'm content with my own family. I don't envy someone else's career because God's given me one that sustains me and provides for my needs and then some. I don't need a different church because God has given me everything I need of this church. You just go through the list and as you practice gratitude, your life will change. I will bet my own on that because it's changed mine. Someone years ago challenged me not just to practice gratitude, but here's the next step if you're in. To practice gratitude practically, to do things that help you practice gratitude. Because what does Jonathan do? He doesn't walk up and say, hey, David, I support you. You're a great guy. And just kind of leave it at that and then go on with the rest of his life. David is recipient to Jonathan's gratitude because Jonathan takes off his robe. He lays down his sword and his belt and his bow, the things that he deserves, the things that would mark him as the heir apparent warrior king of Israel. And he lays them down. And by doing that, he's saying, I'm content. I'm grateful. I'm thankful that I get to play even a small role in what God is doing in this nation. And I'm going to lay it down, and I'm, I'm grateful. And it was a practical step. For some of you, it means starting a journal today. of just writing down things you're thankful for. Others of you, it's singing worship a little bit differently. Maybe you walk in and it's fun to spectate, but for you, practicing gratitude practically means to actively engage when we sing. It means to lift your hands or to sing a little bit louder or do whatever worship motions you feel comfortable doing. It's to do stuff like that. Maybe it's to give, to start living a life of generosity that is just not normal for your family tree to do. But whatever it means, practice gratitude practically. I promise you, and Scripture affirms that if we don't fight off envy, that our life is going to look like Saul. And if you want your life to look like Saul, you're signing up for a life of disobedience to God. Eventually, Saul is dethroned. 
because of this disobedience, but in his heart crept up jealousy, which turned to envy, which turns to hate, which turns to fear, and ends up in attempted murder. I don't know if Saul started out as kingship that way, but envy slowly took root and overtook his heart. If you want to live a life like Jonathan, you're going to decide now to fight off envy later. A life that lays it down for a friend whose love goes deeper than just, hey, I- I'm glad we're friends, but it's, it's sacrifices. It doesn't consider equality with a position, something to be achieved or, or sought after. It's humble. It's submissive. Though it has all the rights of a king, it lays them down for another person. It sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? Who laid his life down. And surrendered everything. Who considered equality with God, Philippians 2, not something to be grasped. Was humble, was a servant. And Jonathan models this. And it comes for full circle for Jonathan. Later in life, Jonathan has a son with a disability, a pretty severe disability, called Mephibosheth. And yeah, that's not a, a, a friendly kid name like Baltazar is, but uh, it's a mouthful. And... Uh, And so David invites Mephibosheth, something that would have not been done in this royal culture. And he brings him in and gives him a seat at the table, just like God did that for you. It's a picture of God's grace that that David, as the king, welcomes Mephibosheth, this otherwise disabled, discarded, not important son of Jonathan's. Says, "You're, you're welcome at the table. Essentially saying, you're part of the royal family. You're You're welcome. You're invited. And Jesus' example is exactly the same. So maybe today you feel like you've been replaced. I used to do that, and I did it better. I used to have a nice house, and then I had to give it up, and I deserve that again. I used to have a a great marriage, awesome kids, and I've lost it. I deserve that. That's, That's mine. God doesn't want envy to take your heart. He wants your heart. And Jesus' goodness to us is that no matter the season, no matter the circumstance, we can decide now to fight off envy later. And here's what's going to happen. If we decide to do that, something radical will take place. And it's a truth that I've just begun to uncover. And some of you who follow Jesus for a long time, you know this is true. And you've practiced gratitude, you know it's true. But here's the simple truth of this. If we decide now to fight off envy later, we're going to recognize this, that when God doesn't owe you anything, you get blessed by everything. When God's not on the hook for the life that you think you should have, everything is a gift. Every relationship is a gift. Every kid is a gift. Every dollar that comes in through your paycheck is a gift. Every worship service becomes a gift. Every moment in Scripture and time spent in God's Word is a gift. Every prayer, every moment of vulnerability with a friend becomes a gift. And that's what God wants for you. When God doesn't owe you anything, you get blessed by everything. And that's the kind of life that Jonathan experiences. He didn't know the ramifications of that one decision to practice gratitude and to surrender and submit to God's anointed one. But years later, we're still talking about the story. And years later, Mephibosheth is included in that royal line. And that's God's heart for you. 
that if we decide now to fight off envy later, we will live a life like Jonathan and not Saul. I don't know about you, but I'm in on that. I want that. I want at the end of my life to look back and say, yes, I decided to fight off envy. And with God's help and God's sovereign grace at work in my life, I overcame the giants. I'd love to pray for you. So I'd invite you as the band returns, just close your eyes and and bow your heads just to focus. And and I know that in a room of this size, or maybe if we look back at the stats, at least 80% of us have wrestled with envy. Maybe even now, it just feels like there's a death grip on your heart of discontent and frustration and stress. And today, you just need to let that go. You need to decide now to fight off envy, not later, but right now. And you know you need God's help in it. You're at the end of your rope. You can't overcome the giant of envy without him. And so, it'd be a privilege for me as we lead into this next and closing song. If I could pray for you. And so if that's you, you say, John, I need God's help. I need his victory. I need his power at work in my life to break the grip of envy. If you just slip your hand up really quick right now, that would help me to pray specifically for you. Yeah. Anybody else? Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Jesus, I just pray that for those who have identified that envy is a giant in their life, that discontent is gripping their heart. Lord, I just pray in your good and beautiful and strong name that you would break the chains of envy in their life. Lord, I pray for the person today that every time they drive home, and I know I've got that neighborhood, every time I drive by it, I've got to fight off envy. Every time I see that new car, I've got to fight off envy. I pray for that person that it would start to be a non-issue in their life. That they would practice gratitude so practically that it would literally change the the core of who they are. They'd become a a happier person, a more joy-filled person, but most of all, a more Christ-like person. God, I pray that our world would see that zero unchanged lives wouldn't just be about one moment, but it would change the, the core of our being. It would shift our character. It would change the way we're grateful about the little things. And that all of life would become a gift. We love you and we pray that Jesus strong and his powerful name. Amen. Hey, I'm going to invite you to stand as we close and just to respond in worship. Maybe to worship like you never have before. And to thank God for